Turning to Genesis 13 to pick up our study of Abraham, we come to the last section here in chapter 13. And in, the, in verses 14 through 18, what we find in this chapter is a reaffirmation of the covenant promise that God had given to Abraham, or Abram at the time, if you prefer. And we recognize that God deals with you and I based on, often based on promises that he gives us. Promises of, as our God, to be our provider and protector. And the greatest thing he provided for us was salvation. And our salvation is based not only on the completed work of Christ, that's the cornerstone of our faith, that Jesus paid it all on the cross when he died for us. But it's based upon the promise of God in regards to that death on the cross. God, you see, God himself accepted the Lord Jesus' death on the cross as propitiatory, as satisfactory. God was satisfied with the death of Christ to pay for the, our sins, past, present, and future. And that's why Jesus says, it is finished. And that's why Hebrews tells us that Jesus died once and for all and then sat down uh, because, because the job was completed. But based upon that adequate and complete death on the cross, God promises something. He promises forgiveness of sins. He promises restoration. He promises the gift of eternal life. Those are promises God makes to us, and they come from a God who cannot lie, and that, why, and that is why you and I can be sure of our eternal destiny. You see, if our eternal destiny was based upon something we had to do to gain salvation, whether it's working your way to salvation or whether it's Christ plus me, we would never have absolute assurance but 1 John 5 says that we can know. He says, These things have I written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, if it said, These things have I written to you who are doing your best to get to heaven, it would have to say you will never know if that's the case, if you're honest with yourself. But because it's based upon belief in Christ and faith transfers its value to its object and the object of our faith, our trust, is Jesus Christ and his complete death on the cross and God's promise made on that behalf. And we saw in the Abrahamic covenant that one of the aspects of this covenant God made to Abraham is that through him the whole world would be blessed. And therefore, our, that blessing has come to us through the person of Christ, according to the book of Galatians. He provided salvation for the whole world. And so the Abrahamic covenant, though Jewish in nature, is related to it, has a relation to us. God provided salvation for Jews and Gentiles alike through the cross. Well, here in verses 14 through 18, God reaffirms his promise. He does several times to Abraham and, and to his descendants the details of this promise. So, so let's read it, starting at verse 14. It says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Really, in this reaffirmation of God's promise, we see here three different details that are involved. We see, first of all, a possession the land that God had promised them. The second thing we see is a people of God, the nation of Israel. The third thing we see is, based on those two things, is a, a, 
a relationship with God, as we see Adam worshiping, or excuse me, Abram worshiping at the end of this chapter. And so we have this covenant reaffirmed to us. And covenants are important in Scripture. God dealt with Israel on the basis of covenants. In fact, there are two other very important covenants that are related to or based upon or extensions of the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to Israel. And I want to take, a little, take some time this morning to take us to class and review those so we understand how God is, has worked with Israel throughout the Old Testament. The first one I want to touch on is what's called the Palestinian Covenant. It has to do with the land and the nation that would possess it. And it's a reaffirmation of the promise given here. And so we're going to turn in your Bibles over to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We're here before Israel enters the promised land. You remember in this point of Israel's history, they're standing on the brink of the promised land. God is about to lead them in under Joshua. And and, this, and God reaffirms it to them, this, this title to the land. Now, we're not going to read it. It's called, God discusses this all the way from chapter 29 through chapter 30, verse 10. You can read it at your leisure. But the highlights are in verse 1. He says, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he had made with them in Horeb. The one made in Horeb was the Mosaic Covenant, or the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. All that went with that. That's the one he had made to, with them in Horeb. And so he's not referring here to the, the, the Mosaic Covenant. He says, I'm going to make an, another covenant. These are the words of the covenant that, that are outside of the Mosaic Covenant, and they have to do with the land. In fact, he mentions that covenant as well in verse 14. He says, I will make this, co make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, and so on. And there's three aspects really here the covenant that are covered. We have the land mentioned. In verse 8, he, re he refers to, we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of the Manasseh. That's in reference to the land on the other side of the Jordan. And he also mentions in chapter 30, verse 5, the land, and that's what this is about. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed. And that has to do with their return to the land someday. And so the Palestinian covenant is a land covenant. It involved a land. It also involved a people of the land. In verse 13, we see God saying this, that he may establish you today as a people for himself. And so this Palestinian covenant not only dealt with the land, but the nation who would dwell in the land, a people for himself, a people who belonged to God. Now these two aspects of this covenant are unconditional. This is something God was going to do. However, the enjoyment of the covenant promise was conditional, wasn't it? Just like all promises of God. God has provided for us salvation. It's done, it's complete, it's out there, but in order to enjoy the blessings of that promise, we have to trust the Lord Jesus by faith, do we not? To take advantage of it. And if we do not trust Christ as faith, for those who deny Christ as their Savior, there is eternal consequences, is there not, in the lake of fire? Well, so it was with Israel. God's, and much of this passage in this section of Deuteronomy is about blessing and cursing about Israel's willingness to walk with God in order that they might enjoy what he wants to bless them with, the blessings of the land, the blessings of being God's special people. He tells them in verses 18 and 19 here in chapter 29 the conditions that he, he, the, that he expected from them. 
He says in verse 18, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. And so what he's saying here is he says, you're going to be self-deceived. You're going to think that you can follow the dictates of your heart and still have peace in the land. And God says, that's not going to happen. And so he has these conditions of walking with the Lord, their God, in order to enjoy the, the, the blessings that God had given them. Unconditional blessings, again, conditioned upon their desire to walk with God, just as you and I do today. Because God has not only provided salvation for us, but he's forgiven us resources in Christ, hasn't he? But it's up to us to decide to walk by faith and to enjoy a walk with our God in order to enjoy the blessings he's provided. Simple concept, isn't it? Well, in chapter 30, he talks about the consequence, consequences here. Let's just pick it up in verse 1 and read this section where he says, Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. And what he's saying is there's going to be times you're going to enjoy the blessing and there's times you're going to be cursed. That means you're going to be judged. And he says that this, when, when these things happen, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God drives you. In other words, God establishes the fact that one of his modes of disciplining Israel was to scatter them, to drive them to other nations, to let, allow them to come in, into captivity and so on. And he says that when that happens, verse 2 and you call, them, call these things to mind when you remember me, what God is saying, and you return, verse 2, to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today and your children with all your heart, with all your soul. We kind of see here uh, conditions of true repentance, don't we? Because when God, God scatters our lives, because we have forgotten him, because we can think we can find fulfillment in life walking according to the dictates of our own heart, when we come to our senses, like the prodigal son, when we come to ourself, when we remember the Lord, repentance includes wholehearted, doesn't it? That's really clear here, isn't it? When we turn with our whole heart and with all our soul. Then, verse 3, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations which the Lord your God has scattered you. And so God's promised this regathering, hasn't he? When this occurs, it's part of this covenant. That when you do disobey, when you are disciplined, when you are scattered, someday I will regather you. His promise of them being a special people is an eternal one. Verse 4, if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live, and so on. And so we see this aspect of the, co the covenant, that God, even though they may rebel, he wouldn't be through with them. God's promise is that his mercy would be remained available to them forever, that God would forgive and restore when they turn to him as a nation. And, and when they did, God says, it's going to be good. It's going to, you're going to, you're, God says, I'm going to circumcise. That means set apart your heart, sanctify your heart towards God. That's a promise that God made. In fact, that really relates to another covenant 
which we call the New Covenant, we mentioned in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8, which is in regards to future things in, when, in, in which these things will come to pass, when God will turn the hearts of Israel to himself. Much of Old Testament prophecy looks forward to this regathering, this time when the Lord Jesus regathers them to himself. You know, there's been a, a, a model of this more than once, really, in Israel's history, but the study we're doing on Wednesday night in regards to the times of Ezra and Nehemiah, studying the books of Haggai and Zechariah, we find that Israel was scattered into captivity. Judah was captured by Babylon for 70 years. They suffered under the rule of Babylon. God allowed them to return to the land, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem. But in our study, we've seen in, on Wednesday nights, Haggai and Zechariah mentioned the fact that, you know, look at yourselves. You're still living sparsely. You're not living abundantly because they had returned to the land, but their hearts had not returned to God. And it continued to decline until the point 400 or so years later when they rejected the Messiah and hung him on the cross. And then God disciplined them again. In AD 70, when Jerusalem was ransacked and Israel scattered as it is yet today. And so there's a, still a, so there's a future fulfillment of this promise. Well, that's related as well to another covenant I want to mention that's related to this, and that's the Davidic covenant. Let's go to 2 Samuel next, chapter 7. We'll continue our classroom study here a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God makes a covenant with David. And this covenant has to do with the rule of David, the kingship of David, with the throne of David. 2 Samuel chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament. But I just want to pick it up. This, in this section, this is a longer discussion, but let's pick it up in verse 12. Where God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, Solomon did, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. There's that curse again. If they, didn't, if they rebel against God, they won't enjoy the rule, the throne. But verse 15, But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before your throne, before you, and your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And so God, through Nathan, spoke the, these details of the covenant, promising him an everlasting rule. Now, Israel has not always enjoyed it. They're not enjoying it today. But that is something yet future as well. There is going to be a future fulfillment because God says, my mercy shall not depart. And I think one of the amazing things over the nation of Israel is that they still have an identity as a nation today after thousands of years. What nation does that? And yet God has preserved them and kept them, and he is someday going to regather them to fulfill the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant repeated in the Palestinian covenant uh, added to here in the Davidic covenant that they would have, that the that the king would have an everlasting rule. So this involves a king and a kingdom. It's unconditional, and it will be filled yet in the future. In that fulfillment of the possession of the land, of the regathering of the land, and establishing of a king and kingdom is the subject of much of Old Testament prophecy. Israel looking for, for the king and for the kingdom to come. It is something yet future. Isaiah 
60, verses 19 through 22 says this, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Also your people shall be all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. And page after page after Old Testament prophecy looks forward to this time when Israel will be regathered under the coming King of King and Lord of Lords. And we believe these promises are literal and that they will be literally fulfilled in the future yet when Jesus returns after the end of the tribulation period yet to come. Now as a church, we pray for peace in Jerusalem. We pray for the King to come. But what we're looking for is is our Savior to come, our King to come, our Lord to come at the rapture. He is going to return for his own. And in, before he returns to set up his kingdom, because we are God's special spiritual people. Israel is God's physical chosen people. We are a special people, as we read today in First Peter. We are his possession, and we have a spiritual heritage that awaits us, and that will, we look forward to gaining when Jesus returns in the air not all the way to the earth, returns in the air to call his own home. And then we will, according to Revelation, return with him when he sets up his kingdom to fulfill these promises he's made to Israel. So let's go back to Genesis 13. That was kind of a quick overview. I may have confused you more than I instructed you this morning, but it gives you something to think about, to research. God has dealt with Israel on the basis of promises just like he does to you and I. But let's take a look at the details of this passage First of all, that it mentions here in regards to the land. Because the first thing God addresses is this possession that they, that they were to possess. And God tells him here to look around. And he tells them, everything you see, north, south, east, and west, in verse 14, lift up your eyes, is yours. And, uh, and, and it says it's yours forever. Even when others thought they possessed it, in reality, Israel held title to the land. Even when others conquered Israel, Israel still had title. It was theirs forever because God says so. There's no expiration date on the title that God gave to Israel. And it was meant to be a special place for a special people. And, and it was a glorious place. When the 12 spies, if you remember in Numbers 13, went to spy out the land, they said, it's just like God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, they carried clusters of grapes on poles between men because it was, so, it was such a bountiful land that God had promised them. And under Joshua, they came to possess much of that land, not all of it, but much of it. And it was as God said. However, through the years of rebellion, disobedience, and discipline, and war, it became a sparse land, a barren land. It is not the land it was in the day of Joshua. However, someday it will be again. God has promised that with national repentance will come a physical restoration to the land. And we know from the Bible that that national repentance is going to come when Jesus returns. According to Romans 11, 26 and 27, it says, So all of Israel will be saved when the deliverer returns. When Jesus comes back, they will enter to this millennial kingdom yet future with Jesus as their king and with Israel as right with their God. 
And when Jesus establishes kingdom, the promised land will flourish. Another subject of Old Testament prophecy, the flourishing of the land. In fact, it's interesting that that kind of parallels with Romans chapter 8, which tells us that the creation is groaning under the curse, isn't it? And it's waiting for its liberation. And and Romans 8 tells us that's going to occur when the sons of God are manifested. And that's coming, and that's time is when Jesus comes back as king. You know, you and I observed beauty in nature as it is, but we can't imagine what it was like in the garden before it was cursed. You know, sometimes when you sit out in the deer stand, you hear the trees croak and groan. Is it the fulfillment of this verse? He says, that's groaning and travailing. It was, it, you know, the creation didn't do anything wrong in the fall. God simply subjected it to the curse because in order to make it difficult for Adam to till and you and I today. If you're a gardener, if you're a farmer, you understand that, what that's about. Well, it says the creation is anticipating liberty, according to Romans chapter 8. In Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2 say this, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. A couple verses down, verses 5 through 7, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And so God's going to restore. In the millennial kingdom, when Jesus comes, this land that he promised to Israel is a land of bounty and richness for them to enjoy. And they're going to enjoy it because they'll be right with their God. The Bible clearly teaches that Israel will be restored spiritually in a right relationship. They will be saved, as Romans 11 says, so they could enjoy the bounty of God's blessing. But I can't help but mention there'll be a second stage, if, if, if you prefer. I think one commentator put it that way in regards to the restoration of the creation, and that's going to be the new heavens and new earth, isn't it? That comes later. After the millennial period is done, God is going to create a new heavens and new earth, according to Peter and Revelation, and no doubt that will be much like the original garden in all its beauty and splendor. And God does all for us, for his people, specifically in this covenant for Israel. And so we have the land mentioned here. The land, he says, everywhere you look, this land belongs to you. And someday it will blossom when Jesus returns. The second thing mentioned here is the people of God. He mentions his descendants again. They're going to be innumerable. And God uses different illustrations. Here he uses the dust of the earth. And if you can go out and count the dust of the earth, you can count the descendants of Abraham. And God says, he's going to come of you, a great nation. And this is yet given to a man who had yet no child, no heir. And that's going to be a whole subject of coming studies in, its, in the book of Genesis. And so God chose Israel as a special people. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And those people still have that, <coughs> excuse me, national identity, as I mentioned today. And God intended for the people of God 
to enjoy the land of God, the promised land, didn't he? He, he wanted them to enjoy its abundance, but as they enjoyed him. Because they're God's special people. We saw in our study that earlier that when Abraham lived in light of his relationship with Jehovah God, he enjoyed the peaceable fruit of righteousness. He lived as he intended and enjoyed life as it, as it ought to be before God. And that's the intention. Now, these just aren't details of a contract that God made with Abraham. They're meant for God's people to enjoy God's place of blessing, the bounty of the land. And it pictures for us the passage we read, if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, it pictures for us today. Because the Bible tells us that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And God wants us to enjoy the blessings he's given us. Now, it's different from Israel. Israel was a physical people with physical promises of a physical land and physical bounty. Today, the church is Christ's body. We are an organism. We are a spiritual entity, and we inherit the spiritual blessings in, that we have in Christ. And it's not that we're not intended to enjoy the bounty of this earth that God has given us, but our blessings are primarily spiritual and to, and to, be, util, and to be discovered and utilized. Verse 9 says, you're a chosen generation. Now, this is different from Israel. This is a fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies that mention that the Gentiles would turn to the Lord. They would come to the Lord, that God would save the Gentiles, and that's you and I. We qualify. I don't know if there's anyone who has any Jewish roots here. We're all primarily Gentiles. But as Gentiles, as saved Gentiles, we're a chosen generation. God has chosen this generation, this family of people, his children, his church, we're a royal priesthood. That means we can approach God through Christ and we can intercede for others through Christ. We're a holy nation, his own special people. And just like Israel, the result of living as God's special people is that we proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The next verse when it says, once, who were once not a people, that's referring to the Jewish nature of this book. That means Israel was a people. God's special people. And, but now the Gentiles are a special people. They're now the people of God through Christ. We had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy through Christ. Therefore, as sojourners and pilgrims, key verse here, Abraham belonged in the land. Now he was a wanderer for a time, but the intention was for God through his descendants to settle his people in the land. They are not so sojourners they were not intended to be sojourners in their own land. That was their home. You and I on this earth are sojourners. This is not our home. Our blessings are not, have, are not in regards to a physical earth. Our blessings are to be the bride of Christ, to be with our Savior, to be with him. So we're sojourners here. We're pilgrims here. We sing this song, this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. That's the idea. We have a spiritual identity, and we're just passing through because we're here on a temporary Work permit, you might say. We're here because we have a job to do. And that's to show forth his praises in order that we might be a light. So as sojourners and pilgrims, we're to abstain from fleshly lusts. Remember, lust, our luster, lust after the things of this earth, of this world. And those things war against the soul. So abstain, he says. Be, have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, though they may not, may not understand. They may criticize you. They may speak against you as evildoers. 
I'm paraphrasing just a little bit here, that they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we have a job to do. Just like Israel had a job to do to represent Jehovah, it didn't always turn out that way for them, but that was their job on the earth. So we are strangers here for a short time. Our inheritance will be yet in heaven. But in either case, the enjoyment of God's blessing, the fulfillment of his, of his ministry for us is conditioned on us walking with him, enjoying him, living our identity, you might say, as a people of God. Let's go back to Genesis 13. Genesis chapter 13. And so we have a possession mentioned here, the land, and we have a people, a special people, God's special people who are going to inherit this land and enjoy it in all its abundance. And that leads, third of all, to then the relationship that Abram enjoyed with his God. And it's pretty simple here. After God told Abram in verse 17 to arise and walk through the land, through its length and width, for I give it to you, which really tells us that get up and search the scriptures to search out your blessings, your abundance that you have in Christ. Then Abraham moved his tent and went and lived by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron. Now these two locations are representative. We know, as we mentioned last time, I believe it was, that, he, that Hebron, if you prefer, could mean the house of God. One commentator says it represents communion with God. It's a place of God's presence. Now, we don't, God doesn't live in a place today. He lives in the hearts of his people. God doesn't live in this church. God's not in this church other than his omnipresence, but God's special presence is not in this church unless the Christians here. And where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them, he tells us. But, this, but Hebron represented living in the presence of God, living with him. Enjoying him, it's a it was it involves a relationship. It involves this communion, and God intends His people to live near Him and with Him. Remember in Jeremiah two, we saw that when God reflected on the early relationship Israel had with Jehovah, He says He says He told them, "Remember when you went after Me in the wilderness? That pursuit of a, of a relationship, of love and appreciation and respect for our God." In the New Testament, Jesus describes it a different way for you and I. He uses the term abiding, doesn't he? In that wonderful passage in John 15. He says this in verse 5 of chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. By the way, when Adam came before, I mean, came to Hebrew, Hebron and Mamre, he built an altar. An altar represents worship, doesn't it? At least on one hand. You know, we often think of worship as, as just singing praises to God, but it is really a, a place of, of humility and glory. It's a place when you recognize the glory of God, but it doesn't stop there. That's just one half the equation. The other half is falling on your face, as they often did in worship before God. It's a place of humility. We're recognizing that God, He is our creator. We need Him every hour. And we can't, as Jesus said here, without Him we can do nothing. That's the point. So in order to do something of value to him, we need to abide in him. That's what he tells us, abide. This is not about salvation. This is not a salvation verse. This is a relational verse. This is speaking to his disciples. It's where, they, it's where they are to live their daily lives in respect to sharing his life. Colossians 3 tells us that our lives are hid with Christ and God, and it goes on to say Christ who is our life. 
And that's what God wants from his people. He wants to share with us the blessing and bounty of living his life, his life in us and through us, and we're to abide in that. Galatians 2.20 says, it's Christ who lives in me. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the, there was one offering that was bloodless. It was the, I think the old King James called it the meat offering. It's called the meal offering, sometimes the grain offering that they would bring this before God. And it really was represented in a loaf of bread. It was the table of showbread in, in, the, in the temple, tabernacle. And, and, a, and that, be, that gets meaning when you get to John chapter 6, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And to partake of him is to find satisfaction in life, fulfillment in life. And that's why he says, if you do, you'll never hunger and you'll never thirst. The fulfillment of life is found in Christ, partaking of him, enjoying him, walking with him. That's where we are to abide. Well, he is also to abide in us, isn't he? We are to abide in him, and he abides in us. That means he needs to be at home in our lives, welcome in our lives, part of our lives, included in our lives. And that's the essence of life, isn't it? It's to allow Jesus to, to direct our lives. And that's why the third use of abide here is in verse 7 in John 15 where it says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done to you. So he describes how, with, how this abiding relationship of us abiding in Jesus, he's abiding in us, is fulfilled as when his words abide in us. Because that's how we get to know him. That's how he reveals himself to us. That's how he directs us. That's how he leads us. That's how he shares his life with us. The word abide means to remain. And the word of and God, Jesus' words need to abide in us. You know, it's one thing to say that we want to walk in relationship with Christ. It's another thing to take the time to hide his word in our hearts, to study it, to get to know him. It's allow him to reveal beautiful and wonderful things about the Lord Jesus. You know, one of the things about all this technicality of the covenants and stuff that we go over in the Old Testament is when you begin to see uh, the uniformity of God's word and his program of progressively revealing himself to mankind and how he's worked through the ages to choose a special people to save the whole world, you begin to see the beauty and wonder of God's character and God's person, the glory of his sovereignty and his wisdom. And when you just, when you, so when you get in God's word and you begin to grow in God's word and just scratch the surface after 40, 50 some years, whatever it's been of Bible study for me, you, and the more you know, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. But what you do know is the, is the wonder of our Savior. And so those words are to abide in us. That means to abide in Christ and for Christ to abide in us means that the word of God becomes our daily guide, our perspective, our priority, our basis of thought. And so, here Abram lived, in God, lived near God's presence. This is representative in, in Hebron. And we are to live in the presence of God as well. Well, the word Mamre, the place Mamre, someone is defined as representing richness. Here in verse 18 of Genesis 3. Richness. It could represent the richness of the land or the richness of relationship. And that's what God gives. You know, it is really amazing when you think about it. Sometimes when, we, when you present the plan of salvation and God's free gift of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ, when people see they're sinners and they need a Savior and their faith needs to be anchored in Christ and they turn it away, they reject it because they have a better plan. Either they have a Christ 
plus me plan or they just have a godless plan to live their lives. And we think, how could you reject something so free? Something that removes the guilt of sin. Something that assures you of eternal life after death. And yet in the Christian life, we often reject the freeness of his grace and his provisions for us in life. Because we fail to allow God's word to abide in us, we fail to enjoy the richness of his blessings that we have in Christ, all given to us from the hand of God. You know, maybe that's why in the New Testament and throughout the scriptures, thankfulness is such a repeated subject. It's so important in our lives. Because God today wants to bless us abundantly. John 10, 10, remember, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life, that's eternal life, and that they might have it more abundantly. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to flip there for a moment, we'll go ahead and flip over to Ephesians chapter 1, because it mentions for us the riches we have in Christ. And when you abide in Christ, you're, you abide in the richness of his goodness and his provisions of his grace. A few verses here. Verse 3, I mentioned already, blessed be the God and Father, chapter 1, excuse me, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. That's rich, isn't it? Notice verse 18. In, the, in his prayer, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together with Christ. Verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 16 says this, that he would grant you another prayer, by the way, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. You see, Abraham dwelt in the presence of God and enjoyed the richness of God. In his case, it was a relationship with God to be enjoyed in a place of blessing. For you and I, it's abiding relationship in Christ. And if you go back to Genesis 13, we see that Abraham's relationship then involved worship. We mentioned that already. He built an altar there to the Lord. Altar was a place of sacrifice, a place of worship. But it really was also a place of testimony, wasn't it? Because I think someone pointed out that I read that ever Abram went, he built an altar. And when he built that altar, he's declaring the one and true God. It was a testimony. It was a declaration of the God who was our creator, who was worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise. And God intends for his followers to put him on display, just like Abram did. He put God on display. This is the one and true and only God. And he was identifying with him. And God wants a life that worships that puts God on display. We don't have to reserve our worship for our, for, the, for our churches. It's a life we live when we live for God in the wide open. Letting our light shine that, God, that they may see our good works. Because we're to be known by our love. We'll be known by our fruit. That's the reality of the Christian life. You know, sometimes we look back at this period of Old Testament history and we think, we think, you know, the time leading up to the Mosaic Law that everything was legal and austere and, you know, and we fail to see the depth of the relationship that the Old Testament saints enjoyed with our God. Picturing for, for life that we're to enjoy with our God. And Israel did just like we do. They often trended towards 
formal religion. In Isaiah chapter 58, God scolds Israel for that formal religion. He says, when you fast, he mentions that again. He mentions something they often did. They did their obligations. They came and they fasted. But he mentions in the early parts of the chapter, you know, some of the attendants of their fast are fasting for themselves. And then he goes on to say, if you want to fast, this is the kind of fast that I want. And the kind of fast that God, God wants involved helping people to be delivered from the bonds that ensnares them. And he says this in Isaiah 58, verse 10. If you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. That was a summary. That God expects his people to represent him in, in, in living outwardly, living actively, serving. And earlier in the chapter, he says, you help people get over those things that bond them and the burdens that weigh them down. It's ministry to people. God says, forget the fast. You're just doing that to, re to, to fulfill a religious obligation. It's just like going to church and walking out and not remembering a thing. He says, it's empty, it's meaningless, unless it translates to shoe leather. That's what God saw, wants out of his people. Now, we do the opposite. We start with shoe leather, leather and think that's worship. Or God starts with, with a right heart and worship. He always does. And it translates to living a life that brings him glory. And then this next verse here in Isaiah 58, I mentioned, he says this, a verse that sometimes you may have memorized or heard quoted. He says, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. And strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. The blessing and bounty fall on the heels of willing service to the use of God in lives of others. You could title that religion versus reality. Well, here in the reality of Abram's relationship with God, he declared his openly his identity with God. He was in a heathen nation. They worshipped idols. They were often hostile to other gods and scorned and ridiculed those who who, who worship one God and only one God as creator, as the living and only God. And that's what Abraham declared here. He lived God in the wide open. And so Abram's response to the promise of God, covenant promise, the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of a land, a bounty, the promise of a great nation to enjoy the goodness of their God and the land as promised was to live for God in the wide open and declare him before the world. And may we do the same. Let's pray. Father, we covered a lot of ground this morning. And Father, but thank you that in your word you reveal to us how you have worked throughout history with your special people and how through your special people you provided salvation for the whole world in the, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that just as you fulfilled those prophecies and those promises in Christ, so you will fulfill promises yet future, your promise of your return for your own in the rapture, your promise of your return to the earth to regather your people and to set up a kingdom. Father, because you are a God who keeps his promises. And Father, may we as your people search the land, search the book to discover those promises, those riches, those wonders that we might live in light of those things, that we might enjoy your richness in our lives. Help us live in your presence every day. Help us to start each day, live each day, finish each day, with a look to you, with a dependence on you, with your word as our guide. So, Father, apply these things to our lives now. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.